Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Spring is here, and you can now get almost anything you need for your sunny days delivered with Uber Eats. What do we mean by almost? Well, you can't get a well-groomed lawn delivered, but you can get a chicken parmesan delivered. A cabana? That's a no. But a banana? That's a yes. A nice tan? Sorry. Nope. But a box fan? Happily yes. A day of sunshine? No. A box of fine wines? Yes. Uber Eats can definitely get you that. Get almost, almost anything delivered with Uber Eats. Order now. Alcohol in select markets. Product availability may vary by region. See app for details. Spoiler alert, this is not a podcast about Stone Cold Steve Austin. Royal Rumble, 1998, one of the most pivotal nights in WWE history. By winning the Rumble, Austin punched his ticket for the main event at WrestleMania 14, and more importantly, called his shot for finally winning the WWE Championship and formally taking his place atop the company. Shawn Michaels, the then current world champion, on the cusp of facing Austin at WrestleMania and relinquishing the spotlight to him, was facing The Undertaker at the Rumble in a casket match. And at one point, he was tossed over the top rope, spine first onto the giant casket sitting at ringside, injuring his back to the extent that he was facing retirement. He did retire, by the way, for several years before coming back for one of the all-time great second acts. But even with Austin winning the Rumble by eliminating The Rock, who was pulling double duty, having already wrestled earlier on the card, and even with Mick Foley, a man who will factor in prominently next episode, even with Mick Foley entering the Rumble three separate times as three separate personalities, even with Michaels defeating The Undertaker with an assist from Kane, see last episode, who tossed his brother into the casket, chopped the casket with an ax, and lit it on fire, even with all of that, the biggest star of the night wasn't in the ring at all or even outside of it with a matchbook, it was a man sitting in a skybox, jumping up and down like every other fan in attendance. It was the baddest man on the planet. It was Mike Tyson. From Spotify and The Ringer, this is The Book of Wrestling, 25 catchphrases that explain the Attitude Era. I'm David Shoemaker. It was a tumultuous time inside of WWE. This was the most fiery period in the Monday Night Wars. 
When rival company WCW was going head-to-head -head with WWE on TV, signing away their stars, uh, having a faction in the NWO that was redefining pro wrestling in big and small ways. WWE was facing all of that. The month prior at Starcade, WCW had finally given us Hollywood Hogan versus Sting, and okay, the ending was a mess. Uh, Bret Hart, newly arrived from WWE, debuted and inserted himself in as the referee in the match, uh, leading to a Sting win, and then subsequent reversal on procedural grounds. Uh, a mess, an absolute mess. And yet, it was a pretty big flex. WWE, on the other hand, had Degeneration X. That was big. They had Austin on the cusp of absolute greatness, just pure electricity coursing through every arena when his music hit. They had a lot going on, but they needed one more thing to push them over the top. And they got it in Iron Mike. Boxing and pro wrestling have a long and intertwined history. Pro wrestling has frequently borrowed from boxing's legitimacy, with boxers serving as referees and timekeepers and cornermen innumerable times throughout the years. Muhammad Ali, for instance, who, who squared off against Gorilla Monsoon and fought wrestling legend Antonio Inoki in an absolutely bizarre shoot match in Japan in 1976, Ali was the special enforcer in the main event at the first WrestleMania. Jack Dempsey and Jack Johnson, both boxed wrestlers. Joe Lewis wrestled late in his career. Buster Douglas, who beat Tyson in 1990, was the special referee for a match between Hulk Hogan and Macho Man Randy Savage on the main event. That job, interestingly, was originally supposed to be Tyson's, but then he lost the fight. Which brings us back to the man in question. To get the full perspective on Mike Tyson, I called up somebody who knows about as much about him as anyone. My name is Andreas Hale, the senior editor of Combat Sports Sporting News, the co-creator of Our Heroes Rock with Jonathan Davenport and Yator Big E Ewan, also the co-host of the Corner Podcast and host of a show called Fighting Words on Sporting News. Let me start with the general, with the, with the real basic thing. Who is Mike Tyson? The baddest man on the planet. One of the most misunderstood individuals in the history of combat sports with an inconceivable redemption arc. Do you remember when he got knocked out by Buster Douglas? How old were you when that happened? All right. The night that Mike Tyson got knocked out by D D Buster Douglas, I was 11 years old. I was playing Nintendo. I was playing River City Ransom. I'll never forget this. My pops had bootleg cable, and he said, Tyson's fighting. And I was in the middle of a level that I hadn't finished yet. And I said, if I leave right now, I'm just wasting my time because this fight will be over in like 30 seconds. I never, I'll never forget telling my pops that. And my pops kept coming into the room. It was like, it's around three. And I was like, all right, it'll be over soon. Uh, it's around four. All right, it'll be over soon. And I remember I heard my pops yell. And I got up, I threw my control down and it ran because I thought the fight was over because Buster was on the ground. And Buster got that long count, got up. And then I sat there. I didn't save my game at River City Ransom. So I had to start all over again. And I watched the rest of that fight. And I watched Mike Tyson get knocked out. And I remember almost throwing up because I couldn't believe what I just saw. Because you were such a Tyson fan? Yes. I mean, as a kid, I had never seen anything like that. Obviously, you know, Mike Tyson's Punch-Out was a big video game at the time. Mm -hmm. You know, growing up as a boxing fan, like I watched boxing ever since I was like five years old. And I remember the first time I saw Mike Tyson. And I was like, as a kid, I was like, this guy's a freak. Like, what is this? Like, he's chiseling in stone. I grew up a pro wrestling fan. He looks like a pro wrestler that just mm -hmm. annihilates people. People love a hero. But in the immortal words of the poet Norman Osborn, the one thing they love more than a hero is to see a hero fail, fall, die trying. In spite of everything you've done for them, eventually, they will hate you. Tyson was unstoppable a living superhero. And then came his public marriage to Robin Givens, a bizarre media spectacle even before Givens accused Tyson of abuse. And the death of his trainer, Customato, and his move to manager, Don King. Tyson's life was beginning to unravel, and his training suffered, and in a fight against Frank Bruno, you can see a lack of movement and over-reliance on throwing big bombs. It was all right there to be seen, but still, nobody could foresee what happened in his February 11th, 1990 match against Buster Douglas in Tokyo. So it was inconceivable they could ever lose to anybody on the face of the planet. 
And he goes up against a guy named Buster Douglas, who as an 11-year-old, I was like, this is a joke. There's no way this guy can beat him. They're fighting at Tokyo Dome in Japan. I was like, this is just a quick fight. And I remember my pop stole cable because he got pissed off because Mike was knocking people out too early. He was wasting his money buying pay-per-views. So he stole cable so he could watch the shit for free. And I, and that was the night that Tyson got knocked out. Oh, what an uppercut by Douglas. And down goes Tyson. It's over. It's over. Mike Tyson has been knocked out. Unbelievable. It was like watching Superman get crushed by Lex Luthor without kryptonite. It just didn't make sense. It didn't make any sense. Also, Mike Tyson was in Vegas at the, around that time. And I remember there's my grandmother kept a clipping where I was with Mike Tyson in his gym as like a 10 year old. It was us and a bunch of kids, and he took a picture with all of us. So it was like it was like he was like a superhero to me. So when he got knocked out, I just I couldn't believe it. Tyson followed the loss with a string of wins, including two controversial victories over Razor Ruddick. But then he was convicted of raping a woman named Desiree Washington and sent to prison, where he served three years of a six-year sentence. Good lord! I mean that this was the collapse. It was like the Roman Empire is falling. It was one of those things that that. As a kid, you were like, this doesn't make any sense to me. I've never seen, you know, this, this hero just completely fall apart. And it thought he might be locked up for the rest of his life. And as a kid, you don't really understand what rape is or, you know, sexual assault allegations. All you know is this guy got accused by this woman, Desiree Washington, which I'll never forget, and ended up going to jail. I remember my pop said, oh, he's going to get off. He's Mike Tyson. No, he's not. He's going to jail. After his release in 1995... He got back in the ring, fighting a string of tomato cans, as they call them, but his technique was still on the decline. For those who have followed boxing, once he was no longer with Customato, things changed for Tyson in terms of how he fought. He hadn't even really hit his prime years, but you could tell that his focus wasn't on the actual foundation of boxing. His focus was just on eliminating people. So things like head movement and setting up his, his uppercuts and his big punches, they all kind of went away because he was such an intimidating force. But once the intimidation factor was gone with somebody like Evander Holyfield much later, but you could see that he just, he wasn't the same guy. But she still wanted to believe because he was Mike Tyson. I mean, you know, obviously he beats up people like Peter McNeely and Buster Mathis Jr. and Frank Bruno, who he, I remember he knocked in the next year, but it still felt like he hadn't figured out who he was at that point. He was still a kid. He was still a kid, but we, we wanted to believe that he would find his final form again, you know, but he, he didn't. He, he never was the same guy. Then came Evander Holyfield. Holyfield was in the midst of his own comeback, and some reports say the Tyson camp thought he'd be another easy win. He thought he could blow a guy out who was willing to stand there and take his punches. If, if you watch Mike Tyson, yes, he, was, he could punch. He's one of the biggest punches we've ever seen in boxing. But his conditioning was never great because he fought such short fights. And Evander Holyfield was a guy who came up from cruiserweight, Olympic medalist, a physical specimen. You know, it could take a punch. And people wanted that fight for so long with Evander and Mike. And when they finally got in the ring, and I think Mike hit him in the second round, and Evander just kind of looked at him, and you could see Mike's whole face change. Mike realized I'm in a fight. And that's the thing that Mike never wanted to be in. Even if you listen to Mike talk today, Mike never wanted to be in a fight. He just liked running people over. But if he couldn't run them over, he didn't enjoy being there anymore. Meanwhile, Evander Holyfield, he loves this. He loves being involved in a fight. He mentally and physically broke Mike Tyson down until he knocked him out. That particular night, my friend actually threw up because it wasn't a shock knockout like Buster Douglas. It was like Austin Powers when the, the steamroller was moving in slow motion and Pow Austin Powers was like, stop. And, and you could see it coming. And it was like, just move, dude. You won't get ran over. But Mike wouldn't move. And Evander just eventually ran his ass over. Tyson lost to Holyfield. It was unbelievable, even after everything that had happened. I watched the fight on a TV, sitting on one of those rolling classroom TV stands in the front yard of a frat house in Texas. I 
was not in the frat, for the record. They just pulled the TV out into the yard to share the event with passersby. Tyson lost. Even after everything, it felt impossible. Tyson's camp complained about Holyfield headbutting during the fight. So if you get headbutted in a fight, yeah, it can't change things, right? It hurts. Heads, they do hurt. But a lot of fighters, it's like getting punched. You overcome that adversity, you figure it out. But he needed an out. I think Mike has said this a few times, is that he kind of needed an out. He didn't want to be there anymore. The head, yeah, Evander Holyfield had a hard head. Of course, most people do have a hard head. But if you're looking for a way out and you need to find one, it's like fighters who fake low blows, who get hit like right on the belt line. It was like, oh, he hit me in the cup. I can't get up. I need to take the five minutes. You want to get an out, but you don't want to look like a punk. So you got to find a a plausible excuse where people who are your fans will believe like, yeah, because people still think Evander Holyfield was a dirty fighter that night. And he wasn't. He was just a fighter who wasn't willing to back up when Mike Tyson was coming forward. So he just he wanted an escape. That was it. And then cue dramatic music. Then came the rematch. Shit. The second fight was uh, it. You realize very quickly that Mike didn't want to be there again. And this time, instead of getting knocked out, he had to find a, a different way out. And he says he doesn't remember. He remembers. It was that was a street fight for him at that point. It was by hook or crook he was getting out of that fight. And that's when he bit Evander Holyfield's ear. Because if he didn't bite Evander Holyfield's ear, he was going to get knocked out faster than the first fight. What do you think that the general public perception was of Mike Tyson coming out of that fight? He's crazy. There was no social media. There was no... People couldn't connect with each other and give their opinions. So all you saw was, you know, this expensive pay-per-view where a guy bit another man's ear off. And for casual fight fans, boxing is such a strange sport because casual fight fans look at knockouts, they go, oh, that guy can beat that guy. I've never heard of that guy, so that guy must suck. It, it, it's not like anything else. It's not like the NBA. It's not like anything else. So when Mike Tyson bit Evander Holyfield's ear, it was basically confirming that the crazy is true for a lot of people. That more than anything else, it was... He was nuts. He was, he was still the baddest man on the planet, but he had a few screws loose. Um, and you got to also remember at this time, you know, shows like in Living Color were poking fun at Mike Tyson. Everybody made fun at Mike Tyson, mm-hmm. but nobody would do it to his face because they thought he was crazy. So that was the, the, the perception of Mike Tyson is like, he's, he's nuts. There's a few screws loose. I would never want to fight him because I don't know what he might do. After that fight... Tyson got his license revoked by the Nevada State Athletic Commission. Needless to say, this was a big deal. I think at the time, it may have been unprecedented. And this left, this was not like Muhammad Ali not (laughs) participating in the draft and taking a few years off. He was considered a, a threat, and they revoked his license so he couldn't fight anymore. And this left Mike basically in the wind, because what was he going to do? And nobody knew at the time what Mike Tyson was going to do. You didn't really see a whole lot of them. You just kind of waited, like, will, will he ever get his license back? And I think, I remember the Las Vegas Review Journal, I believe, wrote a piece about him never getting his license back. So we had no clue what would become of Mike Tyson. And, uh, and uh, you know, where he ended up was probably the one place left in 1998 that would take him. What was that one place, you ask? It has been said that anything can happen here in the World Wrestling Federation, but now more than ever, truer words have never been spoken. Mike Tyson, welcome to the WWE. After the break, Tyson and WWE find out they're exactly what each other needs. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Let's go back to the Royal Rumble, 1998, with Mike Tyson sitting in that skybox next to Shane McMahon cheering on the action. Well, ladies and gentlemen, there you see the baddest man on the planet. He's a huge Stone Cold Steve Austin fan from what we understand. There you see it. Stone Cold is number one. Iron Mike right, having a great time there with Shane McMahon. Ladies and, and gentlemen, it is now time for the 1998 <laughs> Royal Rumble What did you think of the Royal Rumble match? What do you think of Stone Cold? Intense, man. Cold Stone is my man. He won. I, you know, man, I won a fortune. I'm going to celebrate tonight. And no one believed that he could win. I'm just happy, man. What, what about the upcoming... That's 1998. Mm-hmm. I'm a freshman at Morehouse College. My friends went to Clark Atlanta University, which was across the way, and they had cable. So on Monday night, I would flip back and forth with the Monday Night Wars. We had a computer lab where we would try to find the, the message boards for pro wrestling, the dirt sheets. And I remember seeing them and I was like, oh shit, it's Mike Tyson. And at that time, WCW was losing some ground, but you could feel because of, obviously because of Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Rock and, you know, and Triple H, you could feel the momentum shift. Seeing Mike Tyson validated any concern that you had that WWE was still going to be in this world. I was like, oh, they're about to win this shit because they have Mike Tyson, which made so much sense <laughs> when you saw him there. You were like, oh, this, this makes perfect sense. Like, if there was any boxer who would be a pro wrestler, it was Mike Tyson. Because he fit with the sort of, like, ethos of the time in WWE? Is that, is that what made it such a perfect fit? WWE was a rolling circus. And if you yeah. needed a ringleader or you wouldn't need somebody to get in a cage with a lion and think they could kick a lion's ass, it's Mike Tyson. So that rolling circus getting Mike Tyson, it was like the bearded lady showing up and was like, yeah, that makes sense. That fits. That makes perfect sense. <laughs> I'm the same age as Andreas. We were in totally different parts of the country, but we had a shockingly similar experience when it came to wrestling intake. I also had a buddy with a TV who'd sometimes let me watch on Monday nights. And I had the message boards that I could look up in the computer lab. Uh, I called my friend down in Austin to compare notes on what we'd read. That is how I consumed wrestling, how we consumed wrestling. And I remember just talking to my friends and, you know, us pro wrestling marks that sat in these dorms and talked pro wrestling for hours on end. We were like, well, what, what's he going to do? Like, is he going to wrestle Austin? That, that was the first thing. It's like, well, that makes sense. But then it was like, you know, we're college kids and we're just like, that's, there's no way he's going to wrestle Austin. Maybe he'll bite his ear off. The night after the Rumble, Tyson appeared on Monday Night Raw. He stood in the middle of the ring surrounded by a mass of people. And there in the middle was Vince McMahon, the owner of WWE, to make a special announcement. I respect what you've done in the boxing world, but Jesus Christ, son, when you step in this ring, you're messing with Stone Cold Steve Austin, and that's something you don't do. Let me make it short and sweet. What I'm telling you is I want a piece of Mike Tyson's ass. Whoa! I could beat you any day of the week, twice on Sunday. Do I think you could beat my ass? Hell no. Do I think I could beat your ass? Why, hell yeah! I don't know how good your hearing is, but if you don't understand what I'm saying, I always got a little bit of sign language, so here's to you. So we're watching in Austin, flips in the bird, 
Mike does the weird, like, who you, me, you? And then he pushes him. And I remember my friend who wasn't a pro wrestling fan was like, oh shit, Mike Tyson's lost his mind. He's going nuts. And I remember my other boy was like, nah, this is, this is an act. He was like, no, they wrote this. Like, this is part of the script. And I remember sitting here going, they won because we don't know what's going on. And I said, turn to ESPN. I remember telling my go to ESPN. Went to ESPN. And I can't remember if it was Stuart Scott. I can't remember who it was. They showed Tyson's face in that little box. And it's like, Tyson shows up and, and gets in shoving match with pro wrestlers Stone Cold Steve Austin. And I was like, it's over. They won. This is the biggest thing that I've ever seen because Mike Tyson is so crazy that you would think that whatever happened was legitimate, that it wasn't like he wouldn't listen to somebody telling him what to do. And if you watch it, if it was an act, it's a damn good act by Mike Tyson. He had us all in hook, line, and sinker on that. It's a famous segment, an infamous segment, one every wrestling fan has seen a hundred times. But it's worth revisiting it because, I mean, it's just so wild. In retrospect, you know what to put on, but at that moment in time, I mean, we would have believed anything. Tyson was Tyson. Austin was a method actor beyond reproach, and on top of that, he wasn't exactly a known quantity yet. He hadn't been fully subsumed into the pop culture machine yet. His angst was visceral. And when he and Tyson went at it, there was electricity in the air, in the ring. If you don't watch wrestling, and if you don't, thanks for listening, you might be saying, come on! You had to know it was part of the show, right? I mean, okay, Tyson was supposed to be there. And yeah, they had Austin's music queued up, so he was supposed to be there too. But even if it was staged, and it was for the record, but at the time you think even if it was staged, once the middle fingers and fists started flying, any rational person would have said, Even if this is staged, there's no controlling what's about to happen. Even though it was staged, it just felt so real. And Vince, Vince McMahon was the icing on the cake. After Tyson and Austin get pulled apart, Austin is on the floor outside the ring and the camera is behind him looking upward at McMahon who's leaning out of the ring and pointing at Austin, spit shooting out of his mouth as he screams, you ruined it, you ruined everything. Remember, Vince playing the owner was a relatively new thing. The official Austin McMahon feud hadn't even really started yet. This is kind of where it started. So we didn't know the extent of McMahon's acting chops, the limits of his feigned outrage. Looking back now, I mean, it's comical. But in the moment, everybody watching at home felt like we were getting fired too. It got my friends that didn't watch pro wrestling. They were just like, oh, Mike blew it. Like, he wasn't supposed to do that. Vince's performance put that over the top. Because if Vince didn't react, or if he just smiled, or if he acted like it was part of the game, it wouldn't be as big of a deal. But when you saw Vince react the way that he did, it's all believable if you've never watched pro wrestling before. Might be a little goofy. But you feel like the man's really passionate about what he does. In that particular moment, my non-pro wrestling fans truly believed that Austin and Tyson were not supposed to be physically interact, and that pissed Vince off. Tyson was the kind of guy who made you believe, blindly. Just like we all thought in the beginning that he was unstoppable in the ring. And later, just like we all thought that anything could happen in a Tyson boxing match, now he made us believe pro wrestling was real. That, in itself, is a kind of magic. A couple weeks later on Raw, Tyson was in the ring again, this time face-to-face with Austin's WrestleMania opponent, Shawn Michaels. Tyson and Michaels got into it as well, but it was all a put-on. Michaels grabbed Tyson's shirt collar and tore off his shirt, revealing, dun-dun-dun-dun, a DX shirt underneath. But make no mistake about it, Mike. I am calling your ass out right now, right here. Wanna do it? Let's do it right now. Michael's got him. Well, he's got some courage. He's running Tyson's face. Has to watch him to throw the first punch. Here, here goes. Here goes. What the hell? What in the hell is that? Look at that! 
Listen, man, I've watched pro wrestling. There, I don't miss Monday Night Raw. To this day, no matter how bad the product is, I have to watch it. It's an institution for me. So I remember everything building towards WrestleMania. I remember watching every week and still flipping channels back and forth with Nitro. But the thing that sticks out the most is Mike Tyson's goofy-ass smile when they rip off his shirt and he has the DX shirt on. It's the one thing that sticks out the most to me because I was like, he's all in. Like, Tyson is all in on this. I mean, aside from when he was playing with his damn pigeons in the pigeon coop, I'd never seen Mike Tyson just elated. And see, like, he never looked like he had fun in a boxing ring. Post-fight interviews, he, he looked like it was a chore, you know, talking about eating kids and, like, and, you know, beating people up. Like, he never looked like he was having a lot of fun. This whole build, it looked like Mike Tyson was finally in a place where he felt comfortable. It finally, like, that chaos is what Tyson enjoyed. Because it was everything that he wanted to be. Like, the intimidation factor of Mike Tyson is very much pro wrestling. And the act of fighting is the part that he didn't seem to necessarily enjoy. It was like, oh, the, shit, they're going to hit me back for real? I don't really like this part. But I like the, the ring walk. I like the staring them down. I like, the, I like winning. So to be a part of all that and know that, well, I'm, nobody's going to really physically hurt me. I'm going to have a good time. And it felt, that's the part about, that felt like Mike Tyson was, he was a kid. He was somebody who was in his element. We hadn't seen Tyson like that. And as much as we loved him as a boxer, it wasn't until we saw him there that we said, this is his element. He is comfortable where he's at. This is where he was always supposed to be. Four weeks later, on March 29th, 1998, we come to WrestleMania 14 at the Fleet Center in Boston. 19,000 fans in attendance, 730,000 watching on pay-per-view. WWE Champion Shawn Michaels defending the belt against Stone Cold Steve Austin with Iron Mike Tyson as the special enforcer. Shawn is dealing with the injured back, and rumors about it had trickled down to the message boards, to fans like me. The story goes that he was being held together by tape and sheer will, and, of course, painkillers. In his post-wrestling interviews, Michaels is so objectly apologetic for a lot of his antics in the 90s that there's an odd distance to it, like he's telling old family stories. It's from this remove that he went through the match on Austin's podcast back when he appeared on it, and this is how he remembers the state that he was in at WrestleMania 14. I gotta be honest, I mean, I was on a fair amount of stuff, so I mean, for me to say what, what I would have been like completely off it, I mean, I, I, can't, I can't say. I, I, I can't tell you that, you know, going into it, you know, uh, you know the, the whole thing that started it, it was excruciating. I mean, and, and, and you know, you've had, you know, that, that unbelievable pain going down your leg, the leg feeling like it's dragging. And I guess for me, that was the thing that, you know, because pain, I guess, you know, pain, I, I don't know, it's one of those mentally I can always sort of do with pain. Mobility, mobility and feeling heavy always, you know, that more than anything, you know, bothers me, frustrates me. And that's the thing I think that also added to my frustration and my attitude and everything then, knowing that I could not. It was, you know, the one thing that I had, Steve, always had, even if I was the biggest prick in the world, I could always go out there and just rip it down and tear it up. And I knew that was not going to happen this time. I wasn't sure what to think because if you watch Sean work and this was like, I was trying to figure out the, the behind the curtain part of pro wrestling because I was such a mark. And I was like, he, he's not moving like he used to something's wrong. And I remember reading the message board and it was like, Oh, he might be taking some time off. I just didn't know how bad it was, but you figured the, the torch was being passed to stone cold that night. I just didn't know what the future held for Sean Michaels. And I had no idea it was bad as we found out years later how bad that back injury actually was. Like, it's stunning to know that he worked that match. If there was any worry that rivaled the concern about Sean's back, it was the concern about Sean in general and his willingness to go through with the loss. Remember, this is the guy at the center of the Montreal Screwjob. This is the guy who, a year before, had vacated the WWE title purportedly because he was unwilling to lose the title to Bret Hart at WrestleMania. 
This was a man on the verge of injury retirement who barely had any fucks to give even before that. As Sean went to the ring, he passed the WWE production team inside the curtain and right next to them, right next to Sean as he passed by was The Undertaker, cracking his knuckles and sending a not so subtle message. I'm going to be right here when you come back to make sure you do business, according to Bruce Pritchard, who was sitting right next to Taker. Last episode, we talked about horror and pro wrestling and how that intersects with reality. I'd say this is a pretty good example. When the main event entrances started, Tyson was the first out to the ring. Well, there he is, JR! Youngest man to ever win the heavyweight championship of the world. A special enforcer. And again, how can he be impartial? How can he be fair? Now, what do you mean by that remark? Well, he's a member of DX and he's official. Hey, look, There's look! Marvelous Marvin Hagler. When the Jumbotron shows video of Austin walking through the backstage area and into the arena, the crowd goes wild. And when his music finally hit, the audience just erupts into screams. Austin and Tyson come face to face in the ring and jaw at each other before Michaels even comes out. Then Michaels and the rest of DX come out accompanied by a live performance of their theme song by Chris Warren and the DX band. They also did a new metal rendition of the Star Spangled Banner and America the Beautiful to open the show, which is just so amazing that I can't skip over it. Brian, can we just run a piece of that just for, for purely patriotic purposes? Like, perhaps, that rendition of our national anthem, the match itself wasn't the best performance that either man had given in the ring. But it didn't matter. The match was about the story. Michaels was the pompous twerp, and Austin was the gruff aggressor. Sean had his ass literally exposed for a stretch at the start of the match, if that gives you any indication of the level of gravity here. The two guys brawl into the crowd. There are spots with Sean launching into the announce table and into the ring steps. Everything you'd expect on paper. But when you watch it, there's a sort of methodical plottingness to the whole affair. At one point, Michaels has Austin in a sleeper hold and Austin escapes by backing heavily into the corner, which works, except the referee Mike Kyoto is in the way and the ref gets pancaked. Classic spot. There's no referee for the remainder of the match, but there is a special enforcer. So when Austin finally hits the Stone Cold Stunner on Michaels, Mike Tyson slides into the ring to make the three count for Austin's victory. Austin ducked it. Austin going for the stunner and Michaels counter. Michaels going for another kick. Austin, he got it. The stunner. Mike Tyson in. Austin is the champion. Stone Cold. Stone Cold. Stone Cold. Why would Tyson, friend of Michael's and honorary DX member, help Austin win? Yep, you guessed it. He was an Austin guy all along, and the DX alignment was just a, a ruse. I'm not sure that WWE explained it much better than that. I'm not sure they explained it even that well, but it made enough sense. It was intuitive. Tyson was a real wrestling fan. That's part of what made him work in the role. Celebrities have to be fans first to work in a wrestling context. Otherwise, it always comes off too hammy or self-aware. 
and Tyson's fandom made him an avatar for wrestling fans everywhere, even if he wasn't exactly easy for us to identify with in literally any other context. But here, he was a fan, he was us, and we were along for the ride. See, we all love DX too. We all love Michaels. We love to chop our crotches and tell people to suck it. But by early 1998, there was no doubt. We love Stone Cold more. After Michaels regained his wits, he confronted Tyson. Michaels can believe what he's seeing. Mike Tyson waving a 316 in front of Michaels' face. Announcer Jim Ross, more on whom next week, is just reeling off epic sound bites with ease. Stone Cold, Stone Cold, Stone Cold, and the Austin era has begun. But the most significant one is a straight down the middle sportscaster call. Michaels takes a swing at Tyson, and Tyson just levels Michaels with a right hook, and he goes down. One of the best bumps of the night. It was absolutely incredible. It's the earnestness of the call, though, that makes it so transcendent. If Ross had said, that turncoat Mike Tyson, or he's given the heartbreak kid a little bit of his own medicine, or whatever, it would have been too pro-wrestling. Tyson was bigger than wrestling, and this moment was bigger than WrestleMania. Jim Ross made us feel that, and you can see Tyson reveling in the moment. It's not a world title victory for Tyson, but the moment is every bit as big. He's got his moment in the pro wrestling spotlight. And WWE got its moment in the pop culture mainstream. So first of all, this WrestleMania, I'll never forget this. Clark Atlanta University, there was a bunch of us. I went to Morehouse, my friends went to Clark. They were all petitioning. It was like, can you please show WrestleMania somewhere on campus? Because we couldn't, find, there was no other way to watch it. And we finally got them to rent out a room so we could watch WrestleMania. We rent out a, one of the, the conference rooms on Clark Atlanta University. And it was a ton of people watching this WrestleMania. And it was a bunch of people who never watched pro wrestling before. All these people are here to watch WrestleMania because of Tyson. And they're getting introduced to pro wrestling. Some people turned to pro wrestling fans that night. So by the time we got to the main event, the match, I mean, to be honest, I don't remember much about the match itself, except for the, the counters into the stunner. But when Tyson hit Shawn Michaels, I just remember there were some girls that were just like, oh my God, he hit him for real and he sleep. And I was like, this is so silly. Even now, I watch WrestleMania like every year I go through a bunch of WrestleMania matches. Every time I watched the end of that match, I was like, this is so stupid. But it worked. Like it was so dumb. I was like, why did he turn on him? Logically, it didn't even make any sense. But who cares? We wanted to see the baby face go over. And we wanted to see Tyson, who was so unpredictable, turn on Shawn Michaels. It was poetic. But logically, it was stupid as shit. But I was in. And I remember everybody else just cheering and carrying on. And I was like, yep, this is it. This is the moment where pro wrestling has changed. Mike Tyson made WWE cool. It's undeniable that Austin and DX and the general ethos of the Attitude Era had made WWE more interesting and more vital already, but you don't reach the mainstream without mainstream appeal. Tyson conferred his onto Michaels and then Austin and to WWE as a whole. Pro wrestling is awesome. And in general, it has more to offer to the average viewer than most people would assume. That's my take anyway. But that's just the problem. The barrier for entry is high, or at a minimum, it's perceived to be high. And just like in the squared circle, perception is reality. Tyson was appointment television in a way that nobody else was in this era. He was the kind of guy that made you pull the TV out onto the front lawn so that everybody could come by and watch with you and comment on it and howl about it together. He was live tweeting before it was a thing. He opened that door for a lot of new people to watch WWE and to realize that the thing they were looking to Tyson for already existed in so many ways in pro wrestling. Mike just made it acceptable to turn on the TV. Do you think that Mike Tyson changed the fate of the Monday Night War single-handedly? 100%. Again, as I said before, that level of star, once you end up on SportsCenter, like, I believe it led SportsCenter. I don't think anything was going on that night. And I believe it led SportsCenter because it's Mike Tyson. I would assume this, even though I haven't talked to a lot of talent about this, and I, I actually need to because I'm curious. 
I would assume the the locker room boost of Tyson made everybody believe like, oh, we can win this, this Monday Night War. Like, we can win this now. We have the attention of everybody. For me, being an African-American male who grew up in Las Vegas, who went to pro wrestling with my grandmother. I went to the showboat in Vegas to see AWA with Larry Zbysko and Shawn Michaels. I remember my grandmother taking me. And like going to see Ivan Putski, who was my grandmother's favorite pro wrestler. So I've always been a pro wrestling fan, but I was a closeted pro wrestling fan. But my friends who would come over to my house, I would force them to watch pro wrestling. And for years, they're like, dog, this is so stupid. Why do you watch this? Why do you watch this? And I used to buy my little pro wrestling t-shirts. Ravishing Rick Rue was always one of my favorites. I just thought that man was the coolest dude on the planet. But then the Tyson thing happens. The NWO happens. And like one of my friends loved Conan all of a sudden. And one of my friends was like Kevin Nat. Like they all became pro wrestling fans. And now what I used to force my friends to watch pro wrestling, they would show up to my house because they knew I was getting the pay-per-view. It was like just such a significant change. But it wasn't just about Tyson dragging WWE into the mainstream. There was a symbiotic relationship, and I'm not just talking about the reported millions of dollars that WWE gave him to appear. Two things happened at WrestleMania 14. Tyson saved the WWE, and the WWE saved Mike Tyson. Prior to WWE, even prior to the Holyfield fight and the rape conviction and the jail time, Mike Tyson was a punchline. He was the baddest man on the planet, but he was still a punchline. You could hear people doing bad impressions of his voice on every late night show and hell, on every street corner in America. In the 90s, we were a deeply unironic, non-introspective culture that was being bombarded with these new, unfamiliar pop culture excesses every day, and we didn't know how to process it. Tyson made us uncomfortable, so we did impressions of his voice. He did have a funny voice, but we didn't think about what made us uncomfortable. We didn't have the vocabulary to actually make jokes about it, let alone to discuss how he made us feel in an intelligent way. Just like when WWE started going attitude, the general reception from the outside was fear. And it looks so silly, so tame in retrospect. But the big win for Tyson, It was through the bizarro lens of pro wrestling that he was able to show the world that he was in on the joke, that he understood Mike Tyson, the character, the persona, and that he could laugh about it along with us. That's, you know, theoretical. No one's laughing in Mike Tyson's face, even if he isn't on the joke. But anyway, that's just my argument. I asked Andreas. No, that's a good question. I don't don't think so because Tyson was gonna be Tyson regardless wherever he went. And I don't think there was anything that the WWE did. It's like, if you get into the circus, it helps the circus. But if the bearded lady leaves the circus and goes back into society, she's still the bearded lady. Nothing about that circus has actually helped him. So I don't think anything the WWE necessarily did rehabilitated him. It just, they used Tyson to strengthen their grasp on pro wrestling. And then they let Tyson back out into the wild after that. He was still Mike Tyson. Here's my argument for it. And this is a little bit unrefined argument. I'm not going to go to the mat over this one. I think it was helpful to just sort of say the thing out loud, right? It was sort of, it was like, yeah, he's crazy, but like we can have Mike Tyson on. Like culture is crazy right now, right? The outliers at this point were the people who were like wagging their fingers at at him for so many things in pop culture. What WWE was doing at the time is being like, it's okay for us to say suck it on TV. You know why? Because you all say suck it when you're not watching TV, right? Like, the, like there's like we don't have to draw that line anymore. And I think that sort of absorbing Mike Tyson and actually making it clear that Mike Tyson knew he was part of the circus, right? That kind of helped the perception of Mike Tyson because it was like, oh, he's in on the joke, right? He's not actually a psychopath. He's part of the performance. I can see what you're saying there. I mean, it, it did bring some levity to Tyson. I, I, I guess, yeah, I guess I see what you're saying because to that point, Tyson took himself so serious that it was hard to believe that he could have fun. And when we saw him actually having fun, it was like, oh, he's kind of approachable now, right? It's like, we're not going to just make fun of him. We're going to kind of embrace him. Tyson was the same way. If you looked at Tyson then, you were like, he's not going to live to see 30. And here he is, is like one of the most beloved figures in popular culture. 
He has a show called Hot Boxing with Mike Tyson where he smokes weed and he schools people like Little Boosie on gender equality. That's unfathomable. And I think, to your point, pro wrestling gave him that level of comfort where he could be himself and enjoy it and not have to put on this intimidating face all the time. Sorry, all right, Dave, I'm, I'm with you on this. I'm with you. In pro wrestling, the violence is staged. The chaos is staged. But that doesn't make it unentertaining. It's an easy point to make now. I mean, reality TV is staged too, and we engage with it as if it's real, kind of, with the same suspension of disbelief that we do in wrestling. Human beings in 2022 can wrap their heads around that. In 1998, reality TV was in its infancy. Tabloid journalism was getting ready to leave the supermarket aisle for the internet. Adult content was going mainstream. And WWE was on the cusp of breaking out. The world just needed permission to watch. Somebody to make it socially acceptable. Or rather, to make the socially unacceptable seem normal. Mike Tyson was far from normal, but that's why he was the perfect man for the job. This pugilistic Moses leading people to the promised land of debauchery and worked punches. WWE needed Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson needed WWE. And the world just needed a little bit of convincing. Tyson just had to give them a little shove. It's wild to think, though. It almost didn't happen. How far can you spin this backwards? Is it fair to say that Mike Tyson biting Evander Holyfield's ear saved WWE? Yes. Because he wouldn't have been there if he could have been making money boxing, right? We'll take it a step back a little bit further. Buster Douglas knocking out Mike Tyson changed everything, right? Because we have no idea where Mike Tyson would have went. If Buster Douglas didn't beat him, it wouldn't have spiraled Mike Tyson into this figure that was more character than character at this point. When he came back to boxing, it was still a big deal. Him losing to Evander Holyfield the first time before he bit his ear is what put him into the spot. Because, yeah, there's no way he would have been in WWE. He would have still been boxing. He would have had to box. Remember, he was at the mercy of Don King at the time, who basically told him what to do. So if he didn't get his license revoked and Don King had no use for him, Vince McMahon wouldn't have found an opening to employ Mike Tyson. So yeah, this chaotic series of events is what saved WWE. Mike Tyson getting knocked out by Buster Douglas, losing to Evander Holyfield, biting a man's ear off, was a gift to Vince McMahon. That is insane. I wrote and reported this podcast. The show is executive produced by superstar Bill Simmons, Sean the Strangler Fennessy, and Jumpin' Juliet Littman. Our producers are B. Brian H. Waters, Big Papa Pump Ben Cruz, and vivacious Vikram Patel. Story editing by Hacksaw Cal Davenport. Sound design and final mixing by Sweet Scott Somerville. The music you hear in this episode is from Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Copy editing by Amar Bad News Burton, and fact checking by Eduardo Hot Stuff Ocampo Garcia and Dangerous Daniel Comer. Art direction and illustration by me. I'm David Shoemaker, a.k.a. The Masked Man. Thanks for listening.